HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ju Ru, co-founder and CEO of Hero Cosmetics, the incredible skincare brand that launched in 2017 with one product, Mighty Patch, as a test on Amazon. Now, Hero Cosmetics sells a box of Mighty Patch every 15 seconds through channels including Amazon, Ulta, Target, CVS, Neiman Marcus, and Anthropology, just to name a few. Jew has been named to the Inc. Magazine 2019 Female Founders 100 list and was named a Yapo 2019 Amazing Woman in e-commerce, in addition to being acquired by Church and Dwight for over $600 million last year. Hero grew over 3,000% in three years, was the number one top Gen Z brand of 2022, according to Numerator, and has set the gold standard for CPG businesses in today's ecosystem omnichannel, profitable, and deeply loved by an engaged audience. Welcome, Ju. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Allison. And slight correction, we actually sell a box of Mighty Patch every two seconds now. <laughs> it's been updated. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of amazing. I'm going to leave that as the introduction and just like let this, you know, keep recording instead of re-going back because it's kind of, you know, I, I, I was so excited to have you on for so many reasons, but I think, you know, you are aware that your story, this product, this brand, this exit is, is the, it's like the thing that we're all kind of holding our hat on a little bit, if that's the expression, you know, it's the success story that we're all kind of gunning for, but I think also um, the one that gives us something to try for um and also gives us sort of hope um in a really weird consumer packaged goods time um so your generosity in sharing the story in keeping all of us founders sort of in the loop of what's going on um and and just sort of setting a really groundbreaking um you know whole reason for us to build our businesses is is really much appreciated by me and i know by a lot of us so thank you well i'm i feel so honored i had no idea i mean literally when the announcement went out about our sale i i felt like the whole community exploded and i had no idea that so many people were sort of watching us uh, and i had no idea that that many people would be really celebrating uh, yeah. the outcome. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that, um, 
you know, that they're there. I think it was uh, a success story and like it was good news and a bad news cycle. And, yeah. you know, I, I do hope that it inspires other people to keep going because it's, it's possible. I think it's possible, but it also gives us some, some gold standards to, to follow. And, and those gold standards have changed, right? So profitability is obviously like, you know, mm-hmm. as as the tide was turning a little bit on investors and on sort of cash and, and sort of the spigot started turning off kind of gradually and then came to a very grinding halt at the beginning of 2023, your story was like, okay, but if you build this right, it's still happening. You know, it's just now it kind of sets the standard of how to build it right. And obviously that is product specific and in all of it, you know, it's, it's maybe harder to do in food than it might be. Um, you could argue yeah. in beauty, but it's still, it still kind of sets a gold standard. So um, it kind of all, your story kind of happened at the same time that the shift was happening in, in, yeah. in general. So right, right. it's kind of yeah. really cool. And I think a lot of us, you know, I wasn't necessarily watching closely up until then, but I think it's a great story of, you know, all of the things like bootstrapped, finding your people, you know, being, being really excellent at something first and then, mm-hmm. you know, moving into yeah, different whether it's channels mm-hmm. or, you know, products. Um, so we're going to get into all of that. So I'm thrilled. Okay. So let's just start a little bit with the background. Um, you know, the, the folklore is that you, you know, we're in Korea. It took you a few years to figure out how to make a patch for acne. Um, and then when you did, you started with the Mighty Patch on Amazon in 2017. So maybe fill in the gaps a little bit there. Yeah. Um, so by background, I am a marketer. I got my MBA at Columbia Business School and started, I actually worked in CPG. I worked at Kraft Foods, Mondelez, in brand management. Amazing. Um, and so, you know, have that consumer products background. And I, I worked at a, a, some other big companies and then had an opportunity that took me to Korea, which was working at Sam, at Samsung as an expat. Mm-hmm. And that was where, I mean, I, I mean, Hero... And the Mighty Patch, it comes from a personal pain point because I am someone that grew up always breaking out. And, even, you know, even still, even today, I still have that occasional breakout, which actually a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of my own search for something better because all the kind of original 1.0 products didn't work for me. And when I was in Korea, that's where I picked up on these patches that everyone was wearing. Mm-hmm. And this was in 20, 2012. So it, I mean, it's already you yeah. know over 10 years ago. And in Korea, even at that, at that moment, over 10 years ago, people were wearing them out in public. It was a very widely adopted product in the, in, you know, in public use. And as an American, Korean American living there for two years, my first time seeing this sort of product ever. And when I tried it, I, I understood why so many people were using it for their breakouts. I mean, right. it, it literally was better than anything I had ever used before. And that was kind of, that was sort of the catalyst of ask, starting to ask other questions. Like, why am I learning about this product now? Like, right. Why was this not available when I was a teenager, why do more people not know about this product? And and then the sort of hypothesis was, hey, I think if someone, i.e. me, if I could bring mm-hmm. this product to the US and really support it with marketing and education, I think, I think this, I think we can create a whole new category and do something really amazing. Yeah. And um yeah, so we launched in 2017, but there was a moment where I, I I had this idea starting in 2013 or really when I was living in Korea, but we didn't launch until 2017. Right. And so during those 
four years, right. um, you know, I was moving back and actually did try to launch this business on my own as a solo founder. Uh, and I mean, big props to any solar found solo founder out there. It's, it's really hard yeah. and, you know, I had gotten as far as sourcing the manufacturer and I had a brand name and I hired a designer to come up with some packaging, packaging design. Mm -hmm. And then, and then when it came time to sort of, you know, uh, issuing that PO and putting up the money, I got very intimidated and, mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't until, so currently I have two co-founders and it wasn't until I had found my two co-founders that, that I think actually taking the step towards entrepreneurship became a lot, a lot di more digestible, I guess, or it's less intimidating. What did they, I mean, if your background was in brand management and sort of the marketing side, what did they bring? You know, you were clearly looking for, you know, the other functions I would imagine. What, what, what was it about their backgrounds and them that you brought them in? You know what it was, it wasn't an intentional, I'm looking for a co-founder and this is a profile that I'm looking for. It was really kind of happenstance. Uh, I had known them both before because they had a digital agency mm -hmm. and I had, I had hired them. So at a previous company had hired them to build their website. So I was a client of theirs and, and, you know, I was at dinner with one of them and I uh, told them about this idea. I have this idea. I, you know, I think it would, it could really work. And um, and so my one co-founder Dwight, he was like, I think he was kind of looking for his next project also. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he was like, Hey, I'll do it with you if you want to do it. And it was very kind of, um, it, it was a very casual conversation, you know, it wasn't like, it was very sort of off the cuff and very, um, yeah, happenstance. And then he looped in Andy, who's his brother actually. Oh. But I mean, looking back, it all worked out really well because we do have very complementary skill sets and that's why it worked so well. So right. I, um, have more of the corporate experience. I, uh, grew up as, you know, in my career, grew up as a marketer, uh, innovation. I always loved innovation and I had worked in beauty. So I sort of had the category knowledge. Right. And then Dwight, he's, um, an engineer by mm -hmm. background. So naturally like he was really interested in, um, kind of learning how Amazon worked. He, mm -hmm. he's the CEO. So anything supply chain and ops is him. Um, yeah. anything related to it really rose up to him. He's like yeah. the hacker guy who figured out how to just totally. like, optimize the hell out of this. And, and that's, that's kind of, I guess yes. my second question, which is, you know, you, you, the decision to launch on Amazon. Um, yeah. What was that? And then pretty much yeah. a follow up to that is you launch one SKU on Amazon. Obviously you did have to optimize mm -hmm. the hell out of it, but did it just kind of take off immediately? How do you think you differentiated so quickly? Like what led to the success there to then sort of use yeah. that as your launch pad for the next phase? Yeah. So Amazon was, uh, it was a practical decision because we were bootstrapping. So we didn't have a lot of dollars to put up some gorgeous website mm -hmm. and, you know, set up the whole supply chain and all of that. Um, for us, I mean, Amazon, you can get started very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. You create your account, you put up your PDPs, you write the copy and then you know you ship your product to fba and you're sort of up and running mm -hmm. um so there is that in terms of you know um we didn't have a lot of resources so being very practical but also i knew people were buying this type of product on amazon because mm -hmm. we're not the first brand to have an acne patch in the u.s mm -hmm. there were actually some korean brands that had an acne patch in the u.s uh, and that product was doing pretty well, decently. And so I knew that the demand was there, that people were looking for this type of product on Amazon. And so that was also a part of it was, let's go where people are buying this type of product. Yep. And, and then also the very practical part of, you know, it's fastest, cheapest, easiest yeah. uh, in terms of launch. It's funny because I, I, I mean, I guess 
I was speaking to um, this, these founders that I mentor from NYU, and they have a, a functional product. It's a food product, but it's it's functional. And we were talking about optimizing for Amazon or optimizing for D2C. And it just seems to me like when people, you know, have a problem and they are Googling, how do I get rid of, you know, cramps or how do I get rid of an earache or what do I do about they're they're going to Amazon you know that I mean mm-hmm. it just it feels kind of like and it's interesting I think I wonder if you agree there was a moment where I think companies were trying to move people toward their own websites this you know the real yeah. like d2c push and Amazon kind of took a little bit of like a um, and now it feels like people, you know, even us, we're going to have a shelf stable product that we're launching, you know, next year. Are we, are we really going to be selling that much just from our own website or should we be going where mm-hmm. there are people looking for things to just put in their yeah. already existing carts? So what's, I mean, yeah. is, is it, I think it's funny too because I remember I interviewed Madeline from Nutpods like three years ago, and Nutpods started on mm-hmm. Amazon also, which was, and that was like pre the whole D to C, you know, thing. So there's definitely an Amazon, um, an Amazon route to market that seems to be very effective, yeah. especially when you are, when you are really solving a problem and people are seeking a solution, um, which yeah, which you are really doing. Yeah, I mean, I I don't recommend Amazon for everybody. I think it really depends on your brand, your product. Like I probably wouldn't recommend it for a luxury brand, for example. Right. But for a lot of kind of daily use type of items, I think Amazon's really great. Again, like for us, the distribution philosophy was always, we want to sell our products wherever people buy acne products. And Amazon is actually a really big channel for acne products. Mm-hmm. And... You know, in the early days, I remember we tried really hard uh, to to really grow our D2C. So the idea was we were going to have three legs to the stool. It's going to be D2C, Amazon, and then it was going to be retail. retail. And we, we, yeah, we did a lot. Like we, um, we really tried to sort of start migrating people from Amazon over to D2C. We wanted them, you know, to, someone told me like, ideally you would have a third, a third, a third, a third Amazon, a third D2C, a third uh, retail. Mm-hmm. But Amazon is just so sticky. Like you mm-hmm. cannot move these people away from Amazon. And it just yeah. financially it didn't make any sense to, to move them away from a channel that they really, where they really loved to shop. Yeah. And so even now DNC is like a, it's a smaller, um, part of our, our, uh, distribution breakdown, but, but it's an incredibly important strategic channel because it's where our brand story is. It's where all our innovation is where we can control. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And it's interesting how it's, it's sort of like, turned 180 right because there was a moment where it was all about d2c mm-hmm. um i mean that's what the vcs were funding it was all about d2c and i know we would get asked a lot about d2c but now it's you know i feel like if you have d2c like people, a lot of people see it as risk now so. i know well it's funny because you know i mean i feel like linkedin is so you know you know meat is gone long live you know you know plant-based meat long no plant-based meats out now go back to meat like linkedin yeah. sort of this like very catalytic uh place and there's this whole sort of d2c is dead no it's not dead it's dead it's not dead i think i mean correct me if i'm wrong but like you said there it's they're, it's got a role right but it just like instagram yes, has totally. a different role from tiktok has a different role mm-hmm. from pinterest the role might not necessarily be as much of a sales role i i i mean as a consumer myself i have an amazon cart it's got books in it it's got bath salts in it it's got you know my condiments that i always buy in it it's i'm not going as frequently to these individual retailers and like filling out my thing and giving you know that's a more intimate relationship that not not everyone wants i would imagine especially if they're just buying stuff for their teenager or for themselves or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And was it a hit right off the bat? 
<laughs> so it, it depends on how you define a hit, because one of the first things that we did um, when we decided to really launch Mighty Patch and Hero Cosmetics is we we define the parameters, like what is success to us? Is it a million dollars? Is it, you know, is it half a million dollars? Mm -hmm. You know, if it's $50,000, do we consider that, you know, not a success? So for us, what we said was in year one, if we do anything close to half a million dollars, we would consider that a a success. And we ended up doing, I think it was like 1.6 million in the the first year. Oh my God. But was it a success from the very beginning? I mean, there's always that ramp up so mm-hmm. I mean, we also saw that ramp up, but but I knew we had something when we started getting press. Uh, yeah. So that was one of the early strategies of our business was really all about earned media. So literally, I would pitch every single journalist and PR person out there. And one of the first articles that we got was in Into the Gloss. Mm-hmm. Did this whole review on uh, pimple patches, and we were mentioned. She linked to Amazon, and I I remember immediately seeing the um the lift yeah kind of a big like bump yeah. in sales and after that like i remember get us getting a lot of inbounds from mm-hmm. retailers saying oh you know can i get a sample i want to try your product this is really interesting and 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 from that point on it was a, a fairly quick build because yeah I started pitching retailers um, and the first retailer that took took us on was Anthropology. So we launched in September and then by January, we were in 80 doors at Anthropology. Yep. And so was it a success from the, I would say yes. The very beginning. (laughs) I would say yes. Yeah. I I think that's a, that's a, that's a pretty resounding. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about how you did everything. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Ju Ru of Hero Cosmetics. Um, Okay, so it's year one. You've done 1.6. You've got something. You know you've got something. At that point, were you... I mean, you know, Amazon first companies, especially when they are you know, problem solvers and there are things that, you know, bigger companies, let's say big skincare companies could potentially make their own patches. And like you said, there were other patches going on. Um, how do you think you created the moat? Like what, what was your moat? Not only against sort of the, the competitive, you know, emerging brands, but the big ones from just, you know, yeah doing it. So we have a superior product and that superior product leads to uh, more satisfaction when people use our Mighty Patch. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is really in the manufacturing of the product. We have a, you know, we work with someone where they really own, they own the process end to end where a lot of other brands, they might buy from someone who buys from someone Mm -hmm. and so they have less control over how the product is made Mm -hmm. so we have more control over how our product is made which lend which ends up creating a superior product and repeat and it's a superior product 
Yeah, a, a superior product, higher satisfaction leads to higher repeat. Yep. Uh, so I think that's a big piece of it. And then the other thing that really differentiates us is, it, you know, in terms of acne patches, it's our core capability. Uh, for a lot of other brands, it's an add-on. It's just mm. like one SKU, or maybe they have, you know, two or three yeah. uh, amongst a portfolio of uh, 30 to 50 SKUs. So there are some big players out there who have recently entered the category. And similar, similarly, they've launched, you know, just a few, you know, like two, maybe three patches. Um, and they're not, it's not something that they're known for, but mm-hmm. for us, I mean, it's, again, it's a core capability. This is what we are really good at. It's a hero skew. We do them in every shape and every size for every uh, type of need. We make a superior product. And I think because of that, that's been something that really created that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes so much sense. And I mean, I think on that same sort of tack, another, you know, I wasn't following closely, but, you know, we're all aware of these other, uh, you know, of other patches, right? And it seemed just kind of from the beginning that you weren't, um, and maybe this is just like a, a just wildly wrong. Um, it seemed like you were building a much more sort of agnostic brand. And what I mean by that is that you weren't like, we're going to target these 13 year olds that are that the, the, like, it seemed like you were really almost building something that feels like it's been around forever. And I'm just, I'm wondering if that was intentional or, you know, how yeah, you were thinking. Yeah. So, okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad that yeah. you weren't like, no, Allie dead wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, so again, you know, uh, like our our philosophy when it came to who we wanted our products to be for, similar to distribution, where we said, you know, we want our product to be wherever people buy acne products. We wanted our product to be for anybody who had a breakout or any type of acne issue. Mm-hmm. And so, really, I mean, these days, that the age range spans from probably like twelve to thirteen can be all the way, you know, 50 plus menopause, sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, the sweet spot really for us, it's going to be, um, like twenties, probably like late teens to, uh, late twenties or so, but it really does span the, you know, a pretty wide age range. And so we wanted, I mean, we were really intentional about how we did the branding yep. and how we, um, did the packaging because we don't want it to be like super pink and super mm-hmm. girly because it's obviously it's not just women who break out. So we really did create, we wanted to create a very inclusive brand. Yeah. Uh, and so you'll see, you'll see that. I think you'll see that, um, a brand actually does appeal to a really wide swath of people versus, you know, some other brands that are maybe taking more of a niche approach. And it's almost, it's interesting because I think what I loved so much about doing the research again, I'm connecting dots that, that just correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know Mm -hmm. how much you spent on brand and marketing, but obviously part of your story is like that EBITDA, <laughs> like everyone, it was like, yeah. when you got acquired, we're all like, oh my gosh, like they, they, you guys were like really, really profitable. And yeah. I'm almost wondering if I'm sure, I know you spent money. I know a lot of this was thoughtful. I, I really do. But there almost seems like a lot of us have been fixated on brand and mm-hmm. almost on niche brand in a mm-hmm. way where we're spending more on maybe, I don't know, making it um, really super cool or really super mm-hmm. sort of like um, it, you know, it yeah. brand. Um, and yeah. you never seem to be doing that. It, it And I'm yeah. wondering if there's a correlation between that profitability and sort of this much less yeah. niche vibe. Yes. I mean, I, I do think a lot of companies that probably overspend on, they overspend on people and they overspend on marketing and, mm-hmm. and a big part of marketing is going to be, I think the brand and also probably cost of acquisition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I think there are a lot of businesses and brands out there where I, 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 
don't think they have a very, you know, particularly amazing brand, but they have big numbers. Mm-hmm. And what I realized while we were building Hero is that um, it's, you know, it's it's better to focus. It's like for us, we always focus more lower funnel. And actually, this is the first year we're in like year six. This is the first year that we're investing in upper funnel, any sort of upper funnel activity. Um, Meaning awareness, just like general awareness and mm-hmm. you mean lower funnel. Yeah, like we're running, right at point of purchase. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so... You know, and there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of brands and business out there where immediately they want to go into more of that brand and awareness spend, but, mm-hmm. but it's not really worth it because for yeah. us, we waited until we had the national distribution yep. so that when we started running more of the upper funnel, um, ads and they would have a place to go to be able to buy our products. And, yep. and I think, you know, uh, a few years ago when it was, when a lot of these kind of uh, consumer brands were VC funded, that you'll see a big correlation between the VC dollars um, and a lot of sort of the the buzz and the hype and mm-hmm. all that, because I think a lot of those dollars, they ended up going to paying for very expensive PR firms and also spending a lot on these brand, I mean, really amazing and probably beautiful um, brand uh, moments like out of home and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. But, but I remember we hired this research firm and one of the questions that they asked was around awareness versus conversion and they mapped different brands. And it was really interesting because there's a, a well-known beauty brand out there where the awareness was very high, but the conversion was actually quite low. So they were just wasting marketing dollars yeah. um, because, you know, they were spending it on awareness, but not getting the dollars to convert. And for us, it was the opposite. Our conversion was actually high relative to the awareness. And so, I mean, that is really at the heart of, I think, mm-hmm. what made our business so so much more efficient in that yep. sense. We didn't, you know, we waited to spend those kinds of dollars yeah. um, until much later in our journey. It is funny because, you know, we kind of the VC thing has come up a couple of times and, you know, obviously we're nowhere near the type of business or the size of business that you are. And I've had multiple investors say to me over several years, you're a grocery store business. We we're really only interested in digital, you know, and I'm like, Oh, it's food. I mean, yeah. Okay. It's refrigerated, you know? Um, and I think also, are so much of our marketing is spent in that, you know, feet on the street, boots on the ground, grocery mm-hmm. store, yeah. you know, because awareness without a place, especially for us, I mean, we're not on Amazon. We don't, we actually don't mm-hmm. even sell D to C anymore, but awareness for the sake of awareness, where there's no, there's no, there's no end of it. There, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it's just, it almost feels, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but it almost feels like just ego, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. Yeah. if you don't have a place where like for vanity, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because I think what happened is, and I've said this a few times and I don't ever want to sound like negative is I think the last couple of years brands and perhaps VCs have forgotten a little bit. It goes back to where's the consumer going to have the easiest time buying this thing? And isn't it going to be frustrating for them to know that this thing exists, but they have no way to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. hundred percent. And so, you know, how did you build the brand love? I mean, clearly once people tried it, your point is that it's a, it's a superior product and people keep buying it, but you all, you do have that other, you know, talking about the three legs of the yeah. table, you have a, a great yeah. product, you're solving a problem, you know, and there are people who really, really love it and who are doing the sort of like, you know, whispering mm-hmm. for Word you. The mouth, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And and you did launch in Target in 2019, which is a very big account and, you know, Ulta and you just did CVS. So how have you found your road to that brand love kind of user generated piece. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm reading this book called, um, is it breakout brands or breakthrough brands? It's one of those, but it's by the guy who founded numerator and Mm -hmm. it's, 
because I was really interested in like, you know, there are so many brands out there. What makes a few of them really stand out and break through all the clutter? Mm-hmm. And one of the things he, he also says is that there are a lot of brands that spend that focus too much on brand and not enough on product. Mm-hmm. So for him, the breakthrough brands, they really focus on product mm-hmm. because that's going to um, lead to, again, satisfaction and repeat and really create that um that's sort of the source of the brand love. And so I think that's one thing that we did, right, is we really focus on creating an amazing best-in-class product. And then one of the things that we did in terms of extrapolating that through our brand was, okay, people love the Mighty Patch. And we wanted to really elevate Hero. So what is it about Mighty Patch that people really love? What is it about this this experience and, um, you know, what does, what does Mighty Patch mean to them? Right. So we actually hired a firm to do all that research and we, yeah, found some really interesting insights, which were around, uh, when you break out, you, you tend to feel really bad about yourself. It's associated with a lot of negative emotion. Yeah. And so they, you know, they feel like they, they're not in control. They don't feel the best. Um, they don't feel like the, the best version of themselves, um, and all sorts of things. And so the insight was really that, you know, like there's a hero that exists within every single person and yeah. through our products, we're going to really re- you know help reveal that to the surface. And with mighty patch, we created so much trust and brand love with this one product that we did have the authority to be able to expand out into other SKUs. And that's what we've been doing since 2020 is really, you know, this is our core, but really adding on to that sort of um, acne routine or acne regimen with rescue balm or lightning wand, or, you know, we have a SPF made for um, acne prone skin. And, 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 um, and so the idea was really, to create a, a um, more robust product portfolio and a holistic brand that was centered around like the principles of why Mighty Patch was successful and what yeah. it meant to people. And then really weaving it across all products and, and our brand voice. Yeah, no, it makes so much sense. And it's funny. I feel like a broken record a little bit, but I also feel like it goes back to you are a real solution to a real problem. And The problem isn't just, I have a pimple. The problem is I'm feeling, I'm feeling bad, right? It's like, it's the same with us. Like, you know, we always talk about the problem isn't just making dinner. The problem is thinking Mm -hmm. about what to make for dinner. Who's coming to dinner, cleaning up after dinner, like it, you there, but you're answering something that's a real pain point. And I think there's a lot in the world that is just it's nice to have it. It's fun to try, but it's not yeah. consumer centric. It's not, I, I, yeah. I have a problem that I need to solve. And when you're starting with that and, and you, and you hit it right, you know, then you, then you have permission from them for everything, because like you said, they trust you and you've made them feel yeah. better about themselves. Um, yeah. Speaking of launching into those different retailers, you know, were you, um, you know, do you feel like you were more sort of responsive to the retailers incoming or you were proactive about how you wanted to do it, which channels, which retailers, were there retailers that you just developed Mm -hmm. better relationships with and that they let you be more innovative? Like what was that rollout? Like once you, once you gave yourself sort of like, okay, now we're doing retail. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, in the beginning, we, we sort of said yes to everybody. Uh, I mean, it naturally happened that we went into specialty retail first. So the anthropologies, urban outfitters, like kind of smaller retail accounts, but they were great for discovery. And then, and then for us, Target was always a dream retailer. I loved what they were doing with a lot of the indie brands. They were so great at, um, at really like picking amazing brands that resonated Mm -hmm. with our guests. Um, I mean, I just thought they had a really great, uh, sort of brand reputation as a retailer especially and yeah Yeah. and we met them we met them at at a trade show um and you know 
it was funny because we we were at two trade shows. One of the, at the first one, there were a lot of Target brokers that were like swarming our table, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, Target would be great for this, or you got to talk to Target. And then at the second one, so many Target brokers had already mentioned us to the actual Target buyer that she came to our, our booth and she was like, oh my gosh, everyone's telling me I have to visit you. That's amazing. Um, tell me about your product. Tell me about your business. And uh, so that was our first big account. And, but honestly, like we didn't really know what we were doing until we, we hired a sales consultant mm-hmm. and he was great. He had worked with uh, Method and Ollie and you know, had that sort of classic CPG sales experience. Mm-hmm. And he was telling us um, the disciplined way to go to market is you pick your preferred retail partner in every class of trade. So um, in specialty for us, it might be Ulta versus Sephora. And then in mass, it's usually Target versus Walmart. And then in draw, you're going to choose between CVS and Walmart. And then you have um, grocery, uh, you know, club and grocery, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, yep. So, so that was, you know, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And that, you know, that's how you can test the different classes of trade, but also, um, you know, really lean into one key relationship. And so we decided to mass, we were going to go for target. It was always a, a dream retail partner. And, and then in specialty, we, you know, we wanted it to be Ulta, um, and then, you know, we haven't done club yet. Um, and then, you know, in drug, it's CVS. Yep. And so that's how we, and we really took his advice. Yeah. And we picked that one key retail partner in each class of trade. And that's how we, you know, built our distribution. And then, you know, just speaking of Target specifically, you know, you launched with one SKU in Target in 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I th- think you had 10 SKUs or so within two years. Um, uh-huh. What was that? I mean, how did you, you know, it just yeah. it feels like everything was very, you know, a thoughtful seed. You watched it, you nurtured it, you watered it, and then you put the accelerator on. So I'm wondering what the accelerator yeah. was in those two years. Um, yeah, so we started with one SKU because honestly, we didn't have that many SKUs when we were talking to Target. We had like three and you need, I don't know, probably like five to 10 to really have a good shelf presence. So she didn't know what to do with us. She was like, I want to, you know, I want to bring you on, but I don't really know where to put you. And so the compromise was they had this discovery section in beauty that was doing really well uh, with a bunch of minis. And so we decided to do a special skew for them, which is our mighty patch duo um, and still exclusive to target. Actually, no, it's actually, it's an impulse at CBS and also, but at the time it was exclusive to target. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say um, uh, for other entrepreneurs out there, I think um, like cash wrap and discovery areas are amazing because you get a lot of foot traffic and the pricing is really interesting for people because mm-hmm. so at target, that whole area has to be under $10 retail. And so it's, it's a great area, you know, to be in because you'll get a lot of um, people just kind of wandering around and like, you know, they discover and they pick up, you know, something for five bucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we did extremely well there. Mm-hmm. It was a multi-million dollar skew like in the first year. And wow. then, and then that, that opened us up to uh, having getting four SKUs um, in line, and then that led to uh, additional SKUs. So, I mean, we really supported the Target launch with a lot of influencers, and this was in 2019, and um, this was before TikTok was re- like what we know today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we worked with some TikTok creators. Yeah, really- I mean, we paid someone $200, and I think she had like 2 million followers. Yeah. Those, that pricing does not exist anymore, but that was a kind of arbitrage that we had back then. It's amazing. So, um, really, really leaned into TikTok creators, um, in 2019 and, and, you know, worked with a lot of the accounts like, um, uh, I think like, uh, target, what is it? Like target, target does it again. or there are a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. target does it again. Yeah. There are a lot of target specific, um, accounts that we worked with. And we, I mean, that's what we, we use social media to really drive people there. Um, and now we, we focus on the in-store experience too. So the packaging always has to, um, stand out. We do a lot with, um, like, sh- like shelf displays and also in cap and caps. 
months. And then we hired this amazing VP of sales and her goal. I remember she would always say, my goal in life is to make people trip over us in store at Target. And so, I mean, at one point we had so many touch points because we were in line and then we had an end cap and then we had a side cap and then we were at check lane. And I mean, we were in the mini section. We were in so many places in the store. Yep. It was actually really amazing. And that um, that's what really, I think, you know, made that's, Hero and Mighty Pads yeah. almost like um, so iconic at Target yeah. to the point where. We were actually a clue in the New York Times crossword. The clue <gasps> was Mighty Patch Target. And then the answer was it. Um, no so, way. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean would, that, I would say that. Sauce was like I know. a turtle a couple months ago. And my I saved it. It's not even my product, but it's like that's the word amazing. sauce. I think pouch was too. I got really excited. Um, but that's huge. <laughs> I mean, you know. That's huge. Um, Okay, so let's talk for the last couple of minutes about this acquisition. So, like we said at the beginning, um, it was very exciting for the whole community, (laughs) whether you knew it or not. (laughs) It was the talk of the town. Um, Part of it was just that like a great founder with a great product and a great story had a great exit. Um, Part of it was, okay, you know, this is the new, this is the new gold standard. Like we got to get ourselves profitable. We got to get ourselves some positive EBITDA. Um, we, you know, maybe this whole sort of focus on brand, 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 cool kid thing, not to say that you're not, but maybe that's been a little bit outdated at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, for you on your side, was it always, part of your plan um uh-huh. was it i know i mean i i'm reading between the lines that it's been a great experience for you you know which is lovely um but i would imagine a little bit of control maybe giving up a little bit of control i'm just kind of mm-hmm. curious i think yeah um you know all of it yeah yeah. So was it always our intention to pursue an exit? Yeah, it was actually. Yeah. I mean, um, there's kind of the kind of practical nature of it. Like, you know, I have two co-founders who are not family, right? So um, it just made more sense. Eventually we were going to sell this company and probably right. like, you know, part ways or do something else or something. And, and actually I know, I remember some, you know, some people have this philosophy that like, Oh, if you're an entrepreneur or founder, you should never start a business with intention of selling it. But actually for us, it was great because it, you, you, when you think about a potential exit in the future, it changes how you make certain decisions. Absolutely. And so for us, yeah, I mean, for us to be profitable, I knew it was going to be, I mean, it was going to be really important, especially in our category. Um, cause I knew that was going to be an important metric for a lot of potential buyers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think like when, for us, we had sort of this exit in mind and we reverse engineered yeah. how we built this business. And when we raised money, we raised money from people who we knew could help us get to that exit. Yep. Uh, Cause we didn't just raise money. It was really smart money. And we wanted, you know, that thought partnership. Yep. And, and yeah, I think there, there's nothing wrong with it. I think, I think actually it can improve the way that you build a business if you have that sort of end in sight. Yeah, no, I mean, for, I mean, I think, I think the issue that people sort of come up with a little bit is like the Mark, you know, Cuban on, on Shark Tank being like, you shouldn't, you should have so much love and so much passion for this that you should want to do it forever. And, you know, people have gotten sort of slammed, I guess, by him. The reality is, is that like, it may be, unless you're planning to build a family business, the exit is that Mm -hmm. other option. I mean, for food. Yeah. It's hard to imagine not. And I think to your point, reverse engineering it, knowing where those big strategics have gaps in their assortment, Mm -hmm. what distribution states do they have? Like, I know Campbell's doesn't have fresh, for example. So they are likely not Mm -hmm. an acquisition, you know, potential for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that. I do, I do think help. And I, I don't, 
yeah, that whole sort of like you shouldn't be building it for that feels a little um, yeah idealistic maybe or just sort of too yeah. precious. Maybe you can't count on it, you know? I mean, none yeah. of us can count on it, but certainly being yeah. thoughtful about what they're looking for, I think is is really critical. So that's awesome that you did that. And then the experience itself, was it what you thought it would be? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's really hard to sell a company. I'll say it's, and like the stars have to align. There are so many things that have to go right. Um, and post acquisition, you know what? It's a, it's an emotional process. Actually, I would say, um, you, you get asked a lot of questions. Like I remember one of the first questions our banker asked, uh, the three founders was like, do you want to stay? And, you know, we'd never been, we had never even like thought about it. Um, but, but it, you know, it, that really dictates how they sort of position or market your company. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, I went through a lot of personal kind of, yes, I'm going to stay. And then like, no, I think I'm going to leave. And then, okay, no, I'm going to stay. And <laughs> you go back and forth a lot. And I mean, you've, just, you've spent so much time and so much energy and you have so much love for this, you know, this company that you've built. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it, of course it's going to be a very emotional process. And then on the other side, you actually, you do have to, um, uh, you know, emotionally be okay with not being the decision, the decision maker anymore. Yeah. So I know I fully acknowledge that Trish and White bought this company for a lot of money and, uh, I don't have the same kind of decision-making, um, I guess power as before, because <laughs> I have a boss now and mm -hmm. you know, this is a publicly traded company and, things have to be done differently. And I think there, there's, I've heard that there's something called founder depression mm. and, and it happens when yeah, I've heard of you that. Know, people start. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they, they don't go to you anymore. They'll go to like, you know, yeah. the person on the ops team who's actually doing the work and mm -hmm. like decisions get made at like a very, you know, a much higher level now. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I've already made my piece. Uh, and I think the founders who go through that depression are probably like still fighting it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, why did they go to me for this, for this question? Or why didn't they ask me if I'm okay with that? You know, it's, yeah, it, you have to be okay with the fact that it is not your company anymore. Um, it has new caretakers and all I want to do is really make sure that they're in the best place to make this company and brand, or it's not really a company anymore, but make this brand yeah. flourish. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I cannot thank you enough uh, for the hour and I could ask a bunch more questions, but I know that, you know, you have things to do and places to be. So <laughs> I want to thank you again for coming on the show. This was so helpful. I took so many notes. I'm sure everyone listening is going to be like super, super psyched. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And H, thank you so much for figuring out our engineering issues and for getting this going. One of these days, um, we won't have any technical difficulties at all. It's going to be amazing. So H, thank you. And listeners, um, I'll be now back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.